if we could, let's bow in a moment of prayer before we get started. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you once again, Father, to give you thanks to op- for the opportunity to open your word, Lord, to study and be built up and edified and taught by you and the power of your spirit, Lord, especially on this topic of the gifts of your spirit. You are a gracious Father, and you give us all sorts of gifts, Father. May we learn and be built up in the knowledge of where those gifts come from so that we might be all the more grateful to you for what you do in us, and we might give all the more glory to you for the ways in which you work in your people. We ask all this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So when we're looking at the topic of spiritual gifts, I'm hoping that when we start to look at this topic today, that we'll understand the nature of the spiritual gifts. I think when people think about spiritual gifts, they have this idea that these are like, sort of like spiritual superpowers, that these are things that God gives you and you have and they are unique to you and they are special, kind of like a biblical Thor's hammer, something that only you can touch, something that only you can wield, and something that only you can do good with. But that's not what a spiritual gift is. It's not what a spiritual gift is meant to do. It's not what it is intended for. As we are talking about these today, these are gifts, but these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that works in God's people. It is the Holy Spirit that gives these gifts to the church for the good of the church. So that's the first thing, the most first and foremost thing that I want us to see as we start to look at this topic today. So, In Grudem's theology, he answers the question, what are spiritual gifts with this answer? A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used in any ministry of the church. So what I'm going to do in this lesson is I'm just going to break down that statement. We're going to look at what those abilities are. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit's work in empowering his people, and we're going to look at the ministries of the church in which those gifts are to be used. So let's first and foremost focus on the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity. God himself, the one who was promised, the one who is holy and mighty, the wonderful Spirit of God. This is the one who gives us this Spirit. He's the one who is promised All the way back in the Old Testament, the Spirit is very active. It's the Spirit who gave power to the prophets to proclaim the Word of God. We're told that it's the Spirit of God that hovered over the face of the waters when the creation was taking place. It was the Spirit that empowered men like Moses and Joshua and the prophets of Elijah and Elisha to commit their work to God. It was God's Spirit that raised up armies in the names of the judges. 
It was the spirit of God that moved in his people. It was the spirit of God that was placed on unique men like the kings Saul and David at times when the spirit needed to do something particularly special. And all the miraculous occurrences that we see in the Old Testament are done solely because the spirit allowed those things to take place. In the prophet Joel, we read in chapter 2, And it will be afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male slaves and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit. And we see just that thing occurring when we look at the book of Acts The Acts of the Apostles, as most people say, it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it was in Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles and the disciples, and they began to preach. And Peter began to preach from this very section of Joel, demonstrating that it was this moment that was prophesied here, that when these men started to receive the Holy Spirit and they started to speak in tongues, that this was occurring, God's spirit was being poured out on the church. And through that, he was empowering the church with all of these gifts that would would bring about his glory, that would usher in the church age, that would start to build up the church through the power of the spirit. Jesus Christ himself said that it was him that sent the spirit. If you turn with me to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 16. And then we're going to skip ahead a couple times, even into, into chapter 16. And yeah. So in John 4, 16, we read, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. He will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it d- does not see him or know him. You know him, because he abides with you and will be, with, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Skip ahead to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And then turn the page over to chapter 16, where we read in verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, and he will take of mine, and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine, and will disclose it to you. So based on these verses, what could we say is the Holy Spirit's primary objective. What's his purpose? Anyone want to venture a guess to that? Yes, Paul. To make him real to the to, to his children, right? Amen. Yeah, that's what I came up with. In verse 16, 14, it says that he will glorify me. That's his primary function, is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead. But a lot of people want to think that the Holy Spirit makes that Jesus Christ real in the metaphysical sense through personal revelation. But it's not an internal revelation, it's an external revelation, right? That comes through what we had a wonderful sermon about today, comes through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of the Word of God. It proclaims the gospel it's the spirit that works in, in, in through his word. Go ahead, Bob. If you, if you trace back any, any heresy, any apostasy that you see among a church or a former pastor or preacher that you used to respect or love, the first thing you're going to see, if you go back far enough, is a moment where he stopped putting his trust and faith in this book. There was a point where there was something he read that he believed at one point, but then he starts to look at it differently, and the world gets to him and says, you know what, that's just cruel, or it's mean, or it's unfair, or it doesn't make sense. We have more information now. And that little voice in their head, that conscience gets dimmed, and they start to trust what the world is saying about it. And that's when they start making up their own mind, start making their own decisions about what the Bible is actually saying, and that's the very moment where apostasy starts. But the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ said, my sheep know my voice and they hear me and they follow me. We trust in the word of God because the Holy Spirit is that tuning fork inside of us that says this book is true. We would have no faith in the word of Christ if the Holy Spirit wasn't abiding in us. 
And we see that in John 14, 26 and John 16, 13, that the Holy Spirit is working to teach us what this book says, to bring this book to our remembrance, to keep it locked in our hearts and our minds, to make us think on it, to meditate on it. It's a very important work that the Holy Spirit does. It says that he convicts the world in sin in John 16, effectively restraining evil, being that conscience to those who would otherwise not have it. Those who believe in Christ have the conscience. We have, we have liberty from sin, even though we're still you know, corrupted by it. But the entire world that's ultimately corrupted by it and condemned by it would have no response to the words here. They would have no response to what is good and what is evil if the Holy Spirit wasn't working in all mankind, restraining evil. The Holy Spirit regenerates and builds up those select few who have been elected by the Father. We see that in John 14, 16. We also see it in John 3, 5, where Jesus Christ said, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's the other thing that I want us to see is that the Holy Spirit is working to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. In Matthew 12, we read Jesus Christ responding to those who were criticizing the fact that he was casting out demons shortly after he appointed the 12 to do the same thing. And he said, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom does your son cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Not a future event, but an active, current one. The kingdom of God is actively being brought forth on the earth by the Spirit working in God's people, by God gifting the works of the Spirit. Anybody have questions about that? Anything? Yes, brother. I would say that it's, I wouldn't attribute it to being their good work. I would attribute it to where it says that God works all things for good for those who believe in him, right? So you will always see, you know, you could see this in Isaiah. You can see it in Exodus. The evil people of the world have their own intents. But God's purpose is always going to be fulfilled. Even amid evil intents. You know, look at Genesis 50. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And that's what you will always see. As long as God is in control, we can trust that everything that happens, even the most wicked, awful things in the world, are being used for, his, for our good and for his glory. Right? Does that answer your question? So the Spirit empowers us. Jesus Christ said in Acts 1, he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of of the earth. The Holy Spirit is at work gifting people in different ways. So now let's look briefly at the abilities themselves. 
We're not going to go into a ton of detail about the abilities, but we want to look at the passages where we see them. Next week, Bob is going to go through the abilities themselves. Uh, You might want to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians 12 and some of 1 Corinthians 13. But I'll begin in Romans 12, where we read in verse 6, But having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith, or service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We see a whole list of gifts being given by the Spirit there. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read in verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. And there are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything and every one. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to someone else faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the workings of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to someone else various kinds of tongues, and to another the translation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now skip ahead to verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are, are, I'm sorry, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all translate? But you earnestly desire the greater gifts. In 1 Corinthians 7, we read, Yet I wish, this is speaking about the difference between marriage and singleness, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one this way and another that. In Ephesians 4, we read in verse 11, And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we see all different types of of gifts being given here. And we start to think of ourselves, what do these gifts have in common? Are there any differences? Well, there's another passage in 1 Peter 4. where we read this, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. So Grudem, I think fairly wisely, sort of takes all of the gifts and he sort of categorizes them by those two things, whoever speaks and whoever serves. You have gifts like apostleship, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, leaders, people with the word of wisdom, people with the word of knowledge, those who encourage, those who have tongues, those who interpret, which are all dealing with, with, with vocalization of the truths of God. And then you have those who serve, working of miracles, healing, helps, administrating, serving, contributing, those who show acts of mercy. So we see that these abilities are vast. They cover a whole host of different, different things. But when you put them in those two categories, those who serve and those who speak, you can understand that even though there's a variety of different gifts and they work in different ways, the Holy Spirit is enacting all of his people to do one of two primary things, to preach truth or to help serve one another. And that's what we are all called to do. We're called to preach the truth. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to share, build up one another, edify, continually disciple one another, reminding people of of, of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, teaching people the doctrines of grace, teaching people what the the, the solas are, the, the important points of the Reformation, even when we go through things like church history, teaching people what the, the important differences were with, within the church body that caused them to split, that caused them to fracture, and what still was so important that we were able to still have fellowship and maintain unity with one another, even though we differ on a lot of different doctrinal, doctrinal issues. Because God does not want this unified church. He wants us to be one. And that's why things like our covenant, which we read today, the London Baptist Confession, right? Why those documents are so important because they're actually meant to unify the church. They say, we stand on this ground. We understand these things doctrinally. These things are are a must and are very important. This is what we're seeing in Scripture. And if you can agree with us on these things, if you can align with us, then you're our brothers in Christ. And then we understand that there are doctrines that aren't so important. Doctrines such as baptism. Doctrines such as the millennial kingdom and the millennium and eschatology and stuff like that. They're important because we understand the Bible teaches these things, but they're not meant to fracture the church. What unifies us is our belief in Jesus Christ. Those of us that have actually been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ is what puts us all into the same house of God. And we don't need to fracture on every little thing. Some things we do. That's why we create documents like the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession. That's why we're even committing, you know, committing ourselves to creating documents now about you know, marriage 
and about, you know, gender identity and about what the government has, you know, the government's power over, over, over the church. We create these documents understanding that people are trying to come against the church and attack it. But the Spirit of God works to give us all of these gifts to build up the church. So now we'll look at that itself. Let's look at the ministries of the church, right? Going back to that first statement, what are the spiritual gifts? A spiritual gift is any ability. We just looked at what those were. That is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We made very special care to to, to note that in the beginning and used in any ministry of the church. So what are the primary ministries of the church? Well, preaching the word of God is first and foremost. We center everything that we have in worship here around the preaching of the word of God. We start every service by reading from the word of God. We have psalm readings, scripture readings. Our pastors deliver messages that are meant to exegete and expound on what the the word of God is teaching us. We have this discipleship where we open the word of God. These aren't topical these aren't topical studies. We're not going through something that somebody wrote, you know, for children, just trying to give you a baseline. We're trying to actually open the word and show you what the word of God is saying about the the the, the theology. It's 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 the study of God. That's what theology means. We're studying who God is, we're trying to understand who he is. And the preaching of the word of God is central in the church. It's one of the primary ways in which the Holy Spirit works in the church. It was the Holy Spirit who wrote this book. In 2 Peter, we read, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. It's the Holy Spirit that worked in men to write these words down, and it's the same Holy Spirit that works in us to understand them. That same Holy Spirit that works in us to remember these words, to believe in them, to trust in them. That's why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is also to build up the body of the church, to edify us, to train us up. It doesn't matter if it's happening in in the context of, of a sermon or if it's happening in the context of a small Bible study with, between friends or in a prayer group, we are meant to encourage one another and remind each other because we're all going to struggle. The truths of the Bible are the, most, the things that we forget the most often. Right? We're constantly forgetting them. We constantly need to be reminded of them. We constantly need to be taught them. We constantly need to, to invest ourselves in the study of the Word of God. Because if we don't do that, then we are just a couple of bad days from forgetting everything that's in here. God uses the Bible, God uses his spirit to unify the church. We read that early on. First Corinthians 
12, where it says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Someone else, faith, same spirit to another gives of healing, the same spirit, the same spirit working all of us together to unify us to God's glory. Ephesians 4, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Like I said, we all are unified through understanding what this word means because it's that same gospel that works in all of us to save us. It transforms us. And in that spirit, we understand... that it's the Spirit of God that actually also diversifies the church by giving each one of us different types of gifts that we each use to the glory of God, right? He says that we're all different parts of a body. The church isn't just made up of all feet or all hands or all ears, right? We all need to be a different part of the body in order to add our gifts to the, to the collective use of the body. There's different types of of people, there's different styles, right? Look at our society, right? Back in the, in the day, when these words were written, you probably had to wake up in the morning, you had, to, you had to slaughter your own lamb, you had to start pulling your own wheat so you could bake your own bread, maybe build yourself a house. You had to do all the work yourself. We don't do that anymore. We function in society more like the way a church should function, there are men that do all the slaughtering of the animals. Certain men package food for us. People put it on the shelves. We just go to a grocery store and we buy our food for us. Or we grub hub now and we just have it all prepared for us and all cooked and we have it delivered right to our doorstep. Right? And we focus on other things. Right? Now I'm a security guard. That's my function. I go to a hospital and I look over people and I make sure nobody's, you know, trying to hurt anyone. Right? Other people, you know... Bob sells real estate, you know, someone teaches, someone works in an office. We all serve our function and we all work together so that, you know, everybody's job works together so that the society as a whole functions and we're all fed and we all have roofs over our head. We didn't build them. We didn't cook the food sometimes, but we all function together and the church is supposed to work the same way. Evangelists have a function in the church. A pastor and a leader has a function in the church. I'm a deacon in the church. I have a specific function in the church. It's not my job to be a pastor. It's not my job necessarily to be a teacher. I'm grateful that I'm gifted in that, but it's not my function. My primary role is as the deacon of the church. I serve the church. There are people who administer. We have Dave who's been helping us out on sound. That's his function in the church. Without Dave, you can't hear me right now. Right? And even among our pastors, among Pastor Bob and Pastor Paul, you probably noticed they have very different styles of preaching. But they're both great preachers. Not only has God gifted those men to preach and to teach us what the Bible is saying, but He's empowered them in different ways, gives them a different voice. The same way the Bible is written by the Holy Spirit inspired it, but it's written by many different men. You read the words of John, you read the words of Paul, you read the words of Peter, you read the words of Job and Moses, and they're all written very differently. 
It's almost like God, as I heard it described to me in a way, I like it, it's sort of like God just picking up a different color pen or a different style pen. One he uses an inkwell pen and sometimes uses a ballpoint pen and it looks different, but it's all the same words. It's the same author. It all comes through him. That's how a church functions. By the Holy Spirit empowering the entire church to function as one body, the same way a car has many different parts, but it functions together or it doesn't go anywhere. Do I have any questions up to this point? We're getting pretty close to the end already. We're only a half hour in, so it might be a short lesson. Um, to a degree, I mean, you know, in the same way that, you know, after the Tower of Babel fell and the languages were all corrupted, you know, the further you get from that moment, you see language continuing to evolve and change as it goes. And you can see the same thing with doctrine, you know, as, as one church starts to develop, you can see. But, but like us and Presbyterians, we, we really... You know, the two things that divide a Baptist and a Presbyterian, or at least on paper, would be our approach to baptism and church government, right? So they function as a collective of churches that work together, and they're sort of governed by it, like a head church. And they also believe that children are part of the covenant promise through baptism, things that we disagree with. Now, another three, four hundred years, they might have other things that we would disagree on. But as of right now, like I said, all the more important that we understand that the gospel is the same. Now, there are heretical Presbyterian churches and there are heretical Baptist churches. You can find heresy in any denomination, but that's why we say that the most important thing is the gospel. Those who believe that salvation is right? Our, our soteriology, what is the nature of salvation? What is the doctrine of salvation? That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Presbyterians would agree with that. And because of that, they are our brothers in Christ. Now, a Catholic, not all Catholics, but most Catholics, if they're following, you know, the Catholic dogma, will say that we're saved by grace through faith, but, you know, we also need to have works. You know, it's, we, we, have to, we have to do things. We have, to, we have to add to the grace of God in order to be saved. It's not grace alone. It's grace and faith plus works. And because of that, we separate from the Catholic Church complete, completely. Does that make sense? So, yeah, that's, that's why it's important to have those, to understand what doctrines are actually important and which ones aren't. 
because otherwise we won't know why we're separating. And we're not, we're not called to separate from churches. We're called to separate from heresy, from false teaching. So we establish, to what I said, we write these documents to establish what the core fundamentals of the Christian faith are, and those that would be in line with us on those, we're in complete fellowship with. Those that would divide and say, well, no, we don't believe in this, you know, we believe in God and we believe that God uh, is threefold and that he manifests himself in three different ways, but he's not three different people. He's one God and he's one person at different times. So he's the Father sometimes, and he's the Spirit sometimes, and he's the Son sometimes, like a oneness Pentecostal. We differ. That's, that's a key doctrine, the, the doctrine of who God is. If you're going to preach heresy like that, then we have to separate from you. There's no fellowship there. Right. Anyone else? No? Okay. So... One of our last sections, are all gifts active today? Have some gifts ceased? There's a, a debate that's been ongoing within the church, to some degrees a large one, to some degrees a small one, whether all the gifts of the Spirit are, that are mentioned in the Scripture are still active today. And they fall into sort of three camps, two primary camps, and then sort of a, a floating camp. You have the continuationists, those who believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit that are mentioned in the Scripture, including miracles, apostleship, gifts of, of healing, gifts of tongues, interpretation, all continue even to this day. And then you have the cessationists, those who believe that uh, some gifts uh, continue on to this day, but certain gifts such as apostleship, prophecy, miracles, healings, tongues, and interpretations have stopped along with the, apost uh, the apostolic age. That God allowed those particular gifts to exist in the church and at other times in history to facilitate a change of some kind. In the case of the New Testament church, that he allowed the gifts of apostleship, and miracles, and healings to all take place to confirm the apostles' ministry themselves, and as the apostles did their work of building the church initially, being that foundation of the church, and as the New Testament was being written, that, you know, those gifts continued, but then once the, Holy, once the, the, the scripture was complete, once the canon was, was closed, that there was no need to continue those gifts to confirm the apostles because the apostles weren't around anymore and that now God speaks solely through his word, and that we have other gifts such as administration, pastoring, teaching that do continue, but the gifts of healing, tongues, uh, miracles, and the like have stopped. And then there's a third camp. Those that believe, you know, that they're, they're sort, of, sort of right between. They're cessationists, and they believe that the gifts have primarily stopped. Some people are semi-cessationists. Like I said, some, they'll believe everything I just said about cessationism, but they'll still believe in the gift of healing, or they'll still believe in the gift of tongues, or they'll still believe in the gift of apostleship or prophecy. But they don't believe that all the gifts have continued, just, you know, they just change what gifts they believe are continuing and which ones aren't. 
And then there are others that I would probably fall in this camp myself as I was speaking to my brother earlier, that I'm, you know, I, how did Paul Washer put it? Paul Washer calls himself a practical cessationist. Um, and I think John Piper falls into the same category as well, where we understand that men are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And there are certain gifts that we do not see active right now. Apostleship is done. Apostles were those that what made you an apostle was that you were called, you were actively, you were those who you saw Jesus Christ in his ministry in the flesh. You saw the resurrected Lord. You were called by him to be an apostle. You were sent out by him as an apostle. So because that's not possible anymore, that gift has absolutely ceased. As far as prophecy, miracles, healing, tongues, interpretation, I don't see that active at all now. I see those gifts being manifested by people who clearly do not have the Spirit of God, being used to, uh, to sort of manifest the flesh within certain churches, being used to bamboozle certain churches, tricking people into believing that healing is coming. You know, it's, it's no longer pick up your pallet and follow me. And then somebody being miraculously healed by that way, as it was at the time of the apostles. Now it's, hey, your hands are this, but now, look, I can bring you back, and now your hands are the same length again kind of thing. Um, it's disgusting. It's people that are claiming to have the gifts that don't have the gifts. But I'm not going to say those gifts have ceased completely. I'm saying the Holy Spirit is not active in using those gifts or placing them or giving them to the church right now. But the, God is sovereign, and if God wants to all of a sudden you know, right before the Lord comes, cause people to start working miracles and healing and using and speaking in tongues. Amen. But it'll be much more obvious that the Spirit of God is working in his people than people want to claim it is in certain churches today. That's my personal view. I believe Bob is somewhat along that line. Um, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to say about that. Will you differ? Okay. You want to speak on it real quick or? Okay, yeah, I don't want to teach anything Bob wouldn't, but you know, we spoke a little bit. I thought we were a little more on the same page. What? Okay. Not that again. I'm going to... One time, I, when I first started teaching at Red Mills Baptist Church, um, Pastor Harrison... Wonderful brother, I love him very much. He, uh, he couldn't be there for every sermon. He would ask me to do it when he couldn't be there. So he saw me teach a couple times, and then he trusted me, and he allowed me to do it. But I sent him my, ser- my lesson, usually a couple nights before. And one time he sent me an email back, and I didn't, like I was on the road, and I only had my phone, and I just saw like the first couple sentences. It's like, brother, we got to talk. This is complete heresy. And I was like, no, what did I do? And I like had to like find a signal, and then I get over, like it's like two sentences down. It's like ah, just kidding. You did. Fun. I was like, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea what you just put me through the past hour? <clears throat> no. I need the gift of healing now. So, but yeah, as I said, like I said. 
I'm essentially a cessationalist. I believe the spirits, the spiritual gifts have stopped in context of miracles, prophecy, healing in tongues. But I believe the spirit can do whatever the decree of God calls him to do. So if God wants to bring this, this, those gifts back, amen. If he doesn't and he wants to keep them ceased, amen to that as well. Go ahead, Bob. That nuance is based on, well, well, that's his nuance. Um, but he he's taken a cessation, and that's that the gifts have ceased; they're no longer in operation at all. And then there is the middling position, which is what Wayne Grudem teaches in his book, and that is the continuationist uh, uh, view. And that view is that the gifts are still in operation, but not normative like a charismatic would believe but are rare and exceptional. And so the view tends to be open but cautious. Um, so, so I tend to personally mean that middling view, um, but in a lot of it, as me and Anthony were discussing last night, has to do with how you interpret the passage in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, Anthony, you have that passage? It's uh, 13, 8 through 10. 13, and 8 through 10. actually the next thing on my... Yeah, and a lot of it hinges on this. I'll read it real quick. Go ahead. It says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Right, so, so there you go. What is the perfect? If you answer that the perfect is the canon of Scripture, which is the position of the cessationist, Cessationist comes from the word cease, that the gifts have ceased, as it says right there. If you believe that that which is perfect is, is the canon of Scripture, then, then it's consistent to say that all gifts of the Spirit have ceased operating, the sign gifts have ceased operating once the Bible was complete. Um, if you take the uh, charismatic view, where they cease for a period and come back at the end, um, but if you take the view of interpreting that passage as the perfect meaning, the second coming of Christ, the perusia, then you're open to the possibility that these gifts, gifts have diminished. Uh, they may have decreased in, in uh, um, their, their uh, frequency, but they are not, have not ceased completely, or they have changed. They have changed. They've, they've, they've come in different models. But next week when I teach, I can get into more detail on that when we examine specific gifts. Yeah. Um. Since we're talking about Grudem, uh, I have his book here. I guess he says something about this. I'll read this really quick. Um, his final point in this chapter, he calls it a final note, cessationist and charismatics need each other. He says, finally, it can be argued that those in the charismatic and Pentecostal camps and those in the cessationist camp, primarily Reformed and dispensational Christians, really need each other, and they would do well to appreciate each other more. The former tend to have more practical experience in the use of spiritual gifts and in the vitality in worship that cessationists could benefit from if they were willing to learn. 
On the other hand, Reformed and dispensational groups have traditionally been very strong in understanding of Christian doctrine and in deep and accurate understanding of the teaching of Scripture. Charismatic and Pentecostal groups could learn much from from them if they would be willing to do so, but it certainly is not helpful for the church as the whole for the both sides to think that they can learn nothing from the other or that they can gain no benefit from the fellowship with one another. Just, uh, there's a point in that book where he starts to talk about, you know, he starts to say, well, there's certain ways in which charismatic churches sort of display more of the fruits of the Spirit through their works of evangelism and the like, um, and the giving of the church, at which point I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but it's one thing to say that a charismatic church has better evangelism, and it's another thing to say that the charismatic church is, you know, why is that evangelism working? Is it coming from a straightforward and real gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it something that's being twisted? That's what we have to look for. Not just the success of a church. We don't look to any successful church and say that that's, you know, that's, that's showing the spirit, of, you know, the fruitful spirit. You know, you look at Osteen's church. It's a very successful church. But it's not successful just because it has a lot of people. Right? We, we look at the message he's preaching and we understand that, that he's sending a lot of people to hell with the message he's preaching. So there's no success in that church. Go ahead, Bob. Amen. So um, I'm going to skip ahead. We're pretty much near the end. I don't want to. I don't want to run long today. Um, so there was a section on the nature of cessationism. Uh, there was a great sermon I, I listened to by Tom Pennington from Master Seminary. Um, I'll see if I can get you guys the link to it if you'd like to hear it. I thought he he did a really good job with it. But I'm not going to go through that. I'm just going to final. I'm just going to finish up on looking at what your spiritual gifts are. If you feel you, you are gifted, or if you don't feel you're gifted, how do we think about our own spiritual gifts? So I'd read from 1 Corinthians 12 again. We read at the beginning of that chapter and at the end, but there's a section in the middle I'll read now, beginning in verse 11. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For also the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? 
But now God has appointed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, how much more is it that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary? And those members of the body, which we think as less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no such need. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So with that passage in mind, I just ask you, if you're looking for spiritual gifts, I just ask you, what are you good at? Do you have anything that you're good at that you think could be considered a spiritual gift? What do you desire to do based on what you read in Scripture that would be beneficial to the church? What needs do you see in the church that you would be willing to serve in one particular ministry or another? One of Grudem's questions that he, he asks, he says, as you think about your own church, which spiritual gifts do you think are most effectively functioning at present? Which are most needed in your church? Is there anything you can do to help those needs? I would ask God to help you build up your spiritual abilities. Don't be discouraged by weak ability. And certainly don't discourage others of their abilities in the church. Don't boast in your gift, and certainly don't squander your gifts. Be good stewards. Pray on this. Think about it. And finally, in conclusion, I would remind you of what the purpose of spiritual gifts are. They're to edify the body and to build people up. The fruits of the Spirit we read in Galatians 5 the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now to those being to Christ Jesus, crucified in the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Anything that you seek to do in the church, let it bear that kind of fruit. And you'll do fine in the church. And I'll finalize with these words in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Don't forget what the purpose of having spiritual gift is. It's not Thor's hammer. It's not for you to yield and wield and to, to think it's something special that God is giving you to build you up. It's something God is giving you to build up your brothers and sisters. Cultivate it if you can. Ask God to grace you with it if he hasn't and then use it for the good of the body of Christ. Any final questions?
comments. Yes, sister. Plus, don't forget 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It's read at every wedding, right? Because people want to use it as a perfect picture of what love is between a husband and a wife. It's written to display the love we should have for the church, how we function within the church. Now, that is a husband and wife relationship, but it's the husband is Jesus Christ, and the church is his bride. It's how we care for the bride of Christ. So use your gifts to that and with that, we will pray, and then you will leave. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you again, Lord, for opening your word, for reminding us of how all the ways in which you graciously give us gifts, Father. Um, I pray that this message, that this, that this lesson will build up my brothers and sisters and encourage them to utilize their gifts for the good of the church. I pray, Father, that if you um, have not demonstrated to my brothers and sisters what their gifts are, that you will make that known to them, that you would work within them to have them pray and ask you for these gifts, that you would continue to allow them to build themselves up in it, that you would train them up in the work of, of each one of these gifts, that you would empower them to do wonderful things for the church so that the entire church, your bride, Father, would be blessed and built up and edified, and that we would learn to love and trust you more as our great defender and provider and our gracious, uh, just our gracious Savior, Father. The fact that your spirit dwells within us, and it's the source of every single power of comfort that we have. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys. Have a great week.